0: Hello, good evening, and welcome to The Game is About Glory. My name is Steph, and joining me are Gareth and Milo. Hello, chaps. Evening. Evening. Well, all right, lads. With our, you know, with the Antonio steam train momentarily halted by the international break, we thought it would be a great time to take a look back at an era which, in many rather uncomfortable ways, could be said to capture the true spirit of what modern-day Tottenham have been all about, the 90s. Highs, lows, absurdities and dramas all took their part in a decade where the threat of greatness was getting real until it really wasn't anymore. So stay tuned as we'll bring you from Stewie to Dozy to Foxy and Super Steph, not me, the other one, and a few other names in between. But before all that, let's kick off the pod with this week's intro question. And chaps, if you could change one non-Spurs result in history, which one would you choose? Milo, let's go to you first.
1: So I'm going to go for the 2012 Champions League final, which was Bayern Munich one, Chelsea won, which Chelsea won 4-3 on penalties and absolutely robbed them. So really, it's not just, it's not just a Spurs thing. It's not just us getting back in the Champions League uh, the following season and us signing Hazard that summer. Is also correct, correct, writing or wrong? Because Chelsea didn't deserve to do that. They were awful during that time. Really, really dull. Really defensive. And um, and it's got some painful memories for me. I was in the Czech Republic when that game was on, and uh, at my mother-in-law's house, and uh, it was it was a lovely summer evening, and the windows were open. I was watching the football, and Petr Cech, being a bit of a national hero there. As Chelsea won on penalties, I could hear the neighbours cheering and shouting while I was kicking things around the house and generally being very grumpy so yeah how did your
0: mother-in-law feel about that you weren't kicking her stuff around the house i hope
1: uh i I don't i think i was i think i was on my own i think i don't think anyone else was around
0: you you very quickly cleaned up the crockery that you smashed i'm i'm (laughs) I'm
1: not i'm not good company when i'm watching football generally (laughs) I, i don't i don't talk to anyone i kind of stare intently at the tv screen and mumble under my breath so i'm not good i'm not good i'm not good football company very
2: good. All right, Gareth. Yeah, it's obviously another, another painful memory. Uh, didn't No real direct impact on Spurs here, but it's the, um, it's the game at Anfield on the 26th of May 1989 when all Liverpool had to do was avoid losing at home to Arsenal by two goals to secure another league championship at the expense of Arsenal. And I watched it as an eight-year-old and was convinced that, of course, Liverpool won't lose 2-0 at home. Liverpool never lose at Anfield anyway, let alone by two goals. So every time I've watched that goal since I'm sure one of those occasions Groblar's gonna get a hand on it and it's gonna go past the post and Arsenal won't score that second goal. But it was it was the catalyst for what was an incredible era for Arsenal uh, going into the 90s and I can remember uh, going into school on the Monday morning really with my tail between my legs um, (laughs) amidst a whole group of joyous Arsenal supporters and that whole generation of um, Nick Hornby middle-class Arsenal fans as well was born out of that night.
1: I was going to say an added benefit of that would be no Nick Hornby and his bloody awful imitators.
2: Absolutely. So oh, yes. See, I, I, well, there's this a conversation for another time. I
0: actually have to say Nick Hornby's actually a really good bloke. So I can't, I can, I'm not having that. I think he's a really good bloke and I actually hate to say it. I think Fever Pitch is an excellent book. The only problem is it's about the wrong football club. But if you can, if you can take the club out of it, I think it's an excellent book. I've uh, had the uh, pleasure of spending time with him on a few occasions and, uh, you know, not just a passing hello. He's like, you know, good, good long conversations and uh, he's all right. So I've got to. I, I, I,
1: I admit, choice of football club. Awful. I've got to confess, I've never been able to bring myself to read the book or watch the film.
2: Likewise, yeah.
0: Well, the film, the film, the film is off limits. I mean, you know, but the book, the book's really well written.
1: And I've also got a bit of a thing against him because of um, high fidelity as well. Um, I'm a kind of avid record collector, and and I, had I knew it. I lots and lots and lots and lots of people have bought me high fidelity over the years, and I. I'm not that kind of record it just winds me up so he he's he's his first two kind of notable books um just just went off on the wrong wrong angle for me
0: I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And I, I agree with the, I agree with the imitators thing. I think there've been a lot of, a uh, lot of painful imitate actually. It's not been, it's not been very good, but I will recommend, I've got to recommend this for everyone actually. You know, it's, 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 we're in an international break. We can, you know, we can get a little lyrical here and wax off a bit about things that are non-football for a second. But if you want a great book about record nerds or music nerds, I should say, Magnus Mills, The Forensic Records Society is an absolutely brilliant book. And Milo, if you don't like this book, I will pay for it. As a matter of fact, I will send it to you ahead of time because I think it's that good, and I think you'll love it.
1: So we're we doing the game as a about glory book club. Is this is this where we're starting? <laughs>
0: Yeah, pipe and slippers coming next. It's like, oh, dear. <laughs> anyone, got a, anyone got a 12-year single malt on the shelf? Maybe we should just get the cigars out. No, I'll bring you of to my I game. Let me, let me, let me, let me, <laughs> very good man, good man. Anyway, good old single malt, man. As every good uh, Tottenham Hotspur supporting house should have. Indeed, every good house. Anyway, regardless, let me dial us back to uh, the game whose result I would change, these is non-spurs. It has absolutely nothing to do with Tottenham. It has to do with what I think is probably the one of the very greatest football sides I've ever seen in my life. It's the 1982 Brazil uh, with uh, Socrates, Falcao and the like. Um, and it is the game they played against Italy in the World Cup. Uh, Italy won 3-2, Paolo Rossi as some of you older listeners may or may not remember had been in jail actually on uh, some sort of corruption charge I can't quite remember which and sort of come back for this tournament and this was the game where he really started to get motoring for Italy you know no disrespect to Italy because obviously they were a great side they ended up winning the World Cup that year and you know they played really well in this game but that Brazil was beautiful and they they reflected everything that that Spurs were in many ways uh, just you know they played the game like they were poets and Socrates is still I think one of the most astounding footballers footballers. footballers I've ever I've ever seen and uh, I saw him live I saw it when Brazil came to play England in a friendly and it really was not just for me for my friends we all we all said the same the world cup in 1982 died considerably when brazil lost that game and it was ironic cuz england was still in the tournament at that time we would get knocked out you know i think later that night actually the way the games turned out however if you've never seen that game i encourage you to look it up on youtube and i know that most people don't like to look up grainy footage you know it's so troublesome in these days of hd but do it it's worth your time because it's an absolutely superb game of football and you will see you'll truly see why the game is about glory for all of us. And uh, the symmetry between that Spurs, Spurs of 1982 and Brazil of 1982 was huge, right down to the fact that neither of them fucking actually won the top titles that they should have got. So, yeah, I mean, should we spend a whole pod talking about that game? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's time now to look back at the week that was. And uh, speaking of the 80s and 90s, well, not the 90s, obviously, but the 80s, we just have been, or I have been, safe standing. Yes. Standing, you'll be able to stand at football matches again without a steward, uh, you know, telling you to sit down be no Stuart telling you because from on, mon- on Monday, the club announced that it's been successful in its licence application for safe standing from the 1st of January 2022. We join Cardiff City, Chelsea, Manchester City, Manchester United in the pilot scheme, which will see standing in the top two tiers of English football for the first time in nearly 30 years. And just to clarify, that's the top two tiers of English football, not the top two tiers of every stand <laughs> at these clubs. Um, <laughs> Milo uh, and Gareth, guys, what do we
2: think? Are we excited about this? Yeah. I mean, look, I, mean, I, I personally would prefer to sit down than stand up, but I think it's, I think it's really good. I think it's really good signs of progress from a safety and from a technology perspective that these things are, are possible. I think it's great that the club are at the forefront. And uh, I think they used the, f- the phrase f- future-proofed when the stadium designs were first put in several years ago now, because they wanted to be the first to do that. I'm just about old enough to remember standing on the Paxton Road end for three quid back in the probably back in very early nineties actually, which which we'll come on to. But yeah, look, I I think I think it's a really good thing. Um I think that yeah lots of the lots of the very important safety issues and of course <laughs> there was a huge major safety issue that um that, that caused standing to be to be banned in the first place. Um I think a lot of those objections have probably been overcome now. So I, I think it's a really good thing.
1: Yeah, I think it's excellent, and uh, you know this has been a fan-led campaign. That when it started, I think most of us thought it had no chance of succeeding, and it's really, really, really good that um, that we've got to this point. Let's hope that the uh, pilot is successful, and we can see it introduced in yeah more grounds as they're able to adapt them to to. to safely accommodate, you know, standing within the grounds. Yeah, the atmosphere is going to be fantastic, isn't it? It's going to be great. Let's hope we get an FA Cup game at home for, for the first weekend in January.
0: I agree. And I think one of the things, you know, remembering the the good old, bad old days of standing uh, very well, I think one of the things I like about the new initiatives is that you're going to get all the the fun of standing without... You know the overcrowding. I mean, it's not going to be overcrowded. It is going to be well spaced. You know, it won't be spaced out massively, but it will not be like it was before.
1: It's one for one at the moment. So, ba- so basically, yes. all Which that's is happening is that your seat is going to be bolted into position. Yeah. So you're standing up. So anyone who thinks this is going to re- yes. is going to lead to cheaper t- tickets is kidding themselves it's going to be the same price as it is now that's not going to change because it's not going to increase capacity but hopefully it'd be great over time if we could if we could get to the point where it was kind of one and a half per seat so yeah once you've proved it's safe you maybe you can fit a few more people in then yeah over time maybe that'll happen but it's not going to see a drop in prices
0: no but uh what it will see is us dropping that stupid song stand up if you hate this and stand up if you love that possibly my, the most annoying song i mean so it's just like oh really so if nothing else safe standing will surely see the end of those stupid songs so i'm glad that <laughs> yeah i agree exciting stuff Earlier today, our women's side got a well-earned draw against Arsenal in the North London derby. Uh, We took the lead in the 65th minute through Rachel Williams, which is our first ever goal in a Women's North London derby. Arsenal sadly snatched a draw in the second minute of added time just to show that the pain of a last-minute goal (laughs) carries through the club's DNA. (laughs) Oh, God, I can't say that DNA thing. I didn't... Anyway, (laughs) you can see the joke I'm trying to crack. I won't go there. Milo, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, the women's team because I know that you keep good tabs on them.
1: Yeah, I mean, just on the game generally, I think... um... Yeah, you know, there had been some dogged defending for uh, up until that 65th minute goal, um, and uh, Neville had had a chance. You know, shortly after that to make it two 0 which is a real. You know, she shot over from uh, just inside the area, which is a, r- a real shame because um, we, we were you know, we were good value once we got the goal. I just think the side made staggering progress. You know, this, this is only our third year in the top flight of um, of, of, of you know in the Women's Super League, um, and we're currently third. In the, in the league and in the last Champions League position. Um, that's at the time of recording. Um, I think Brighton can go above us if they if they win this weekend. And just I think um, you know Conte isn't the only brilliant appointment we've made recently. Uh, Rianne Skinner. Uh, has done an absolutely fantastic job since coming in in November l- last year. And you, you know, you think about in the summer we let let go of a lot of players. There was a really, 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 you know, we talk about painful rebuilds. There was a really painful rebuild with the women's side this summer. And for them to hit the ground running and perform as they are is remarkable. You know, they they deserve you know, all the praise they get. They're they're really playing well this year.
2: Yeah, I've, I mean, I. I saw them play they played Birmingham at the at the, at the main stadium back in September mm. and I think it's really interesting to see that there's um I mean that they've got the um Canadian Captain who plays at centre half is mm. the captain for Spurs as well, Shalina Zadorski, and she just looks a level above. I say everyone. I don't mean that detrimentally to the rest of the players. That was genuine world class experience that's gone into the into the very heart of the team, um, and that she seems to have been having a really um, strong influence across the rest of the players. But I think what I've noticed is that they've started to look um, more technically. Mm. Capable this season, I still think probably the default position is that they go into these games against the likes of Arsenal and you know, Manchester City, who actually you know we beat earlier in the year and Chelsea with a slight inferiority complex. I, I get the feeling that they think, well, let us try and try and defend and not lose before we go out and win. Um, but that will come, and there's there's a really good. I mean, I've I've seen the area. They've they've got their own area at the training ground now. They've Mm. got their own pitch over there. Things are really, really moving. It's on a really, really nice trajectory. And I think that if anyone's just following Spurs women's results from afar, I think we'll be pleasantly surprised over the next few years um, just to see that the the line that they're on will continue to go upwards. Excellent. Very good. All right. Thanks, chaps. Um, Yes,
0: uh, I suppose suppose actually, and it's not in the notes, but I mean, we should note, that Harry Kane, um, having come out and you know made comments in the press about uh, not being fully at the races, you know mentally, physically, so on and so forth, and uh, whatnot, and whatever little word I can come up with. Well, anyway, he turned around and he then you know smashed a hat trick uh, in the international.
1: And I think um, it makes him England's all-time record goal scorer in competitive games.
0: It does indeed.
1: And in touching distance of um, pretty much all the other records now, he he'll clear that uh, within the year, won't he?
0: Okay, thanks, chaps. Right, let's get to it. Spurs in the nineties. I just actually tried to put together some sort of like waxing preamble about what Spurs in the nineties was, and I realised as I was talking to to Milo and Gareth that it was just a load of cobblers because you can't couch it in any way, really. It was such a bizarre decade that we're just going to just going to dive right into it, and we're going to dive in with the opening question, uh, which is, what was it like
2: being a Spurs fan for you in the nineties, Gareth? Do you know what? The Spurs in the nineties—it's such a rich genre of Spurs nostalgia. I mean, I'm so happy when I heard that this was the theme of the pod this week. I mean, I, I was—I <laughs> I was, I was nine years old in 1990, so so you, you, my account is through the prism of well, obviously started as a nine-year-old and became a, went through my teens as a Spurs fan as well. I mean, look, I mean, looking back on it, it was it was such a sort of clusterfuck of a decade, was not it? Because every season seemed completely completely... completely disconnected to the one before it and the one after it so whereas now where it's in our parlance around projects and building towards something Um, well I think as we'll go on to discuss maybe the first couple of years under Terry Venables it felt like there was a plan in place Um, but from that point onwards for various reasons you just go huge peaks and troughs that you'd go from 12 month to 12 month period was um, was incredible but look there was some we had some amazing genuine world class players um, for the club in the moment but they were a very, very small minority. There was there was a hell of a lot of mediocrity in the nineties, both in the dugouts and on the pitch. And I think you can look back at it with some nostalgia now, and it's quite fun to look back on. But it's it's important. So a lot of people listening to this at the moment may be fairly new to new to Spurs. And often you'll hear on a variety of different podcasts when we go on a three game um, streak where we don't win, um, someone will come out and say that it's not as bad as supporting Spurs in the nineties. So I think this is why we're talking about it, isn't it? It's just- is to really give some substance to that sort of, um, you know, that sort of cliche about Spurs in the 90s. So, yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to the things we're going to discuss for the rest of this pod.
1: I'm not. I hated the 90s. It was awful. We, we, were, we were bloody awful. And, you yeah, know, Gareth's absolutely right. We had we did have some fantastic players, but more often than not, we'd have one, if we were lucky, two good players surrounded by absolute crap and as the decade goes on it's a slide it's a slide into mediocrity so the decade the decade starts well it's a slide into mediocrity that took us 15 years to recover from and um i'm i'm thankful that sugar saved us from bankruptcy but that's it It, the way he ran the club was awful so that's it
0: well thank you for that balanced retrospective (laughs) Always good to have a, a rational point of view on the <laughs> the game is about, Glory. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's great. So good. I, I'm going to split the difference and say that for me, it was constant Jekyll and Hyde, uh, uh, a Jekyll and Hyde decade. I mean, you know, from pony kits, quite literally, to, you know, one of the greatest away shirts we ever produced in uh, 1994, 95, from, you know, teams of enormous excitement same 1994 95 to teams of stupefying boredom and I'm thinking of like 1998 I mean you know 99 the pony years it really was as you say Gareth a, a, you know a, a bouncing ball you never quite knew where you were and yes Milo 100% and we'll get into this Uh, you know thank you Alan Sugar for saving us from Captain Bob Maxwell uh, which would have been a possibly greater disaster mm-hmm. Uh, but no thank you for the way that you actually managed to manipulate the club and squeeze it uh, like a Teabag. actually i would never want a cup of tea from alan sugar because he'd used the same bag six times uh and and, and 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 you wouldn't get any biscuits which uh we'll get into later but there was a time where he actually eliminated biscuits from the uh from the morning tea round as i understand it so yes It was a bouncing ball, wasn't it? It was all over the place and we never really knew where we were going. And, uh, you know, we've look, the S word has been brought up. Uh, He bought the club in 1991. I want to say the S word, I mean Alan Sugar. Um, He bought the club in 1991, you know, and how much of this discussion is actually a discussion about his stewardship of, of, of the club? Because, I mean, he did set the tone, didn't he? It's very true. And and he maintained the tone for much of the decade. And you know, I, I, Gareth, I'm going to ask you to start first because I just we can't have the level of of, of just you know parity and 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 uh, common sense and, and that, that Milo's been displaying already. We can't have that. We, we've got to we've got to get a little irrational here. So I'm looking to you for some irrational opinion, Gareth.
2: Yeah, okay, I mean, you're talking to someone who is a 12 year old went outside the then trading ground in Mill Hill with an A4 bit of paper with sugar out written on it once he'd sacked Terry Venables. So I very much lived through Excellent. this Excellent, and you have risen <laughs> yeah. to the challenge. And Philo, I've risen you've to the been challenge. Trumped. We've all been trumped. <laughs> Fantastic, Gareth, you legend. <laughs> I mean, my, my, I've got a slightly revised version or thoughts on Alan Sugar now. But I mean, Marlo, you fairly flippantly said Alan Sugar, you saved us from bankruptcy. But so what? I mean, that's a bit like so, Mr. Lincoln. How was your trip to the theatre? Otherwise, <laughs> it's um, he, <laughs> <laughs> there's the yeah. dark horse is riding muck in, in in the in the pod. Brilliant. He uh, he's he's the main protagonist in the Spurs. Decade of you know of the '90s, Alan Sugar, without a doubt, and I don't say he, he splits opinion because I think probably the opinion is about twenty percent of him are sort of quite like him, and eighty percent of the Spurs fans think he's the is is the is the Antichrist. But you can't deny the fact that without his intervention, which is financial intervention, who knows what would have happened to us? We we may well have been playing in second, third tier of English football had he not been involved. As you said, you know, Robert Maxwell had been in, involved; it would have been an unmitigated disaster. Um, however, he. Um, he wanted to run the club as he ran his as he ran his business empire he wanted to do things he's not quite Mike like Mike Ashley but it's probably the best um mm. for for someone recently sort of following the game he's probably the best example you can give that he really didn't want to invest a great deal of money into the club and he, he hoped that he would find coaches ultimately that would um that would that would turn brocks into diamonds.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair, isn't it? I mean, um, he famously said that he wanted to run the club like Wimbledon, and uh, yeah, and uh, you know, you're absolutely right. I think Ashley's probably the closest. I mean, he d- he did put money in to begin with, to you know, to save us from bankruptcy. But yeah. um, after that, after that kind of initial period, it was it was cost cutting and scrimping, and the uh, yeah, transfer business was was pretty poor on the whole, wasn't it? And you know, I was—I uh, well, was just going to uh, jump ahead to the kind, of, the kind of the reaction to the Klinsman, Klinsman leaving and the Carlos Kickerball. Yeah.
0: Uh, before before we get to that, I, I, I do want to add. I think that yes. Mike Ashley with a bit of Mike Reed in him as well, I think, if anyone remembers Mike Reed, because he had a mouth on him like Mike Reed did, mm-hmm. albeit not quite the same accent. He certainly always enjoyed the limelight. But I think, actually, for me, one thing with Sugar that's very important to sort of divine is that when Terry Venables was at the club working with him, Sugar was uncomfortably okay. With Venables being the face of the club, and and as that was happening, we did actually see a few good deals go down. I mean, we yeah. did see the Teddy Sheringham came in from Nottingham Forest, which was uh, undoubtedly an excellent acquisition for us. And and you know, you felt that you know, you felt that we were, we were okay because Venables, of course, is such a personable and 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 somewhat erudite actually um, spokesperson for the club. But of course, the problem started once you know, Venner's sort of, you know, I I don't want to get into any sticky language here, but let's just say didn't behave properly and was found out to have not done so as such. And I think Sugar at that point, for me personally, I don't know how you feel, at that point, this sort of like, you know, dental floss line of trust that he had in letting a spokesperson go ahead of him. He's like, right, fuck this. I can never let this happen again. I'll never let anyone be like that. And it feels like after that, it was always like, well, whoever it is, He's going to be under me, yeah. And that's when he truly imposed himself. Does that feel about right?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think, um, I think when Sugar came in, he was a bit green and relied on Venables. And of course, Venables was at the club before Sugar and was involved in bringing him in. And I think Venables' plan at that time was, I think he, I think he mistakenly thought that Sugar might be a silent partner in this and he'd be left to run the football club. But of course. You know, when they, the, the messy fallout, you know, when they, when they, you know, when they, um, when they fell out over, you know, how Venables was acting, um, I think Sugar reacted to that and became probably his natural self, a complete control freak. And he ran the club like a budget computer manufacturer which is was his experience prior to that.
2: I think I mean I remember reading Sugar's autobiography that probably was written about 10 years ago but he speaks about those early times when he came in to the club and he said sort of, firstly the first few home games he'd been sitting in the block next to the directors box Unknowingly, and someone said to me, Well, you know, you put 11 million pounds in, why are you sitting over there? And the director's box was full of venables and all his people in there. Um, Sugar also talks about the complete chaos that the club, the way that the club was run. He said that he observed a player one day just pulled into the car park after training, went to the back of the club shop, opened his boot, and got people from the club shop just to throw loads of kit and merchandise in there. Mm-hmm. And you know, when he questioned it, if, that's just what the players did if they wanted to do it, so there was no stock control. And you can imagine. Imagine from someone from you know, Sugar's perspective who you'd know, like to micromanage and count all the beans. The flip side of that is, and I won't name player,
0: but I know a player who, when they joined the club, was so appalled at the fitness facilities mm. that said, I, I, I cannot do this. I, have, you know, I need a membership for a David Lloyd's gym because this is just not professional. And, and he got it because even Sugar couldn't disagree with that. You know, so, I mean, we did cut corners in some pretty weird places and we're back to the fable tea and biscuits thing, which at one point the rumour goes that he cut biscuits for the morning elevenses that used to go around the club offices. I mean, you know, he was quite legendary for for finding a way to pinch a penny. And I think it's fair to say, uh, you know, and and we should probably touch on this now. It's fair to say it probably cost us a few players along Mm. the way. Would
2: we not agree? I, yeah, well, I mean, I think it did. I mean, perhaps in Sugar's defence, he'll say that he spent four and a half million on Raul Fox and Chris Armstrong. When, I mean, four and a half million sounds a lot of, didn't sound like a lot of money, but I think in the mid-90s it, it did. He then spent six million pounds on Les Ferdinand. So there there is evidence that money was spent there, perhaps not very, very wisely was the problem. But yeah, I, I think the problem was that he just didn't see what was happening elsewhere in football, that he wasn't an innovator at all. So at the time when Arsenal were going out and you know, appointing Wenger and Chelsea were, were were bringing in foreign players. He, because of the Klinsmann episode, he had a real fear and loathing, I, th- I think, and re- reticence to go and sign continental players. Whereas we can see in hindsight now that was the direction English football was going in at the time. So the teams that succeeded um, were innovators. They were embracing some of the continental ideas that came across, and we did it as a reaction, in the end and then we did it badly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, kind of their reactionary point is a key one. You know, if you look at Chris and an appointment that looks you know almost entirely as a uh, an attempt to try and mirror what Arsenal was doing with Wenger and just getting it badly badly wrong and it, you know you, you you say about um uh you know the Klinsman fallout from that well the fallout from that was us missing out on Burkham.
0: yeah yeah and I mean look I, I will I will share a little more um sort of football gossip if you will that I came into at the time um at the 1994 World Cup uh, here in the US I happened to run into uh Sir Alex Ferguson, after Brazil's opening game, he was actually over with the Scottish Football Association. I think he was also scouting uh, Mauro Silva, actually, for, for Man United, who would have been a great signing. I oh, would, would have been a great signing for us, actually. He saw my Spurs T-shirt... I asked him if he'd sell us Mark Hughes for why I'd give him some money for him. Uh, He said, you'd like him, wouldn't you? And I said, yeah, but I wouldn't want Paul Ince. And he said, you'll never talk about Ince badly to me young man. And he proceeded after that to actually buy me and my mate uh, several drinks and was just completely conversational for the next night, for the next hour or so. Really, really nice. uh, Really loved. Well, I found him to be a really nice guy, really enjoyed talking about football, but my word, he laid into sugar. And this was the, this was, the summer of course when we'd had the points deduction that uh we'd had a twelve points twelve point deduction uh and we were kicked out of the FA Cup and uh he he was all over it. But the thing I took away from it was and it's something you just hinted at, Gareth, is that, you know, Alan Sugar wasn't a football man. So he wasn't you know, he wasn't the sort of guy who could go and, like, you know, have a sherry with his with his peer or, like, you know what I mean? That was not who he was. He was who he was. And you had to be him or not, or he wasn't going to talk to you. And Ferguson told me that it actually cost us, you know, that when it came to, to dealing with, with Alan Sugar, other clubs didn't like it. They didn't like him. He was unpopular. And so it really did cost us, I think, in many, many ways.
1: Steph, I've got a theory that you know, for Premier League managers... Words got around about the cruel way that you treated uh, Graham Soonas and that they're uh, and and, uh, and they're they're overly nice to you because they're scared that you're going to give them a shove in the back when they're not paying attention or um, just. Yeah very true you know that's
0: Fergie was very very quick when I when I went to buy him a drink he was very quick to say no lads uh, let me get them in with one <laughs> eye over his shoulder at all times knowing my potential for bar shoving as I'd become as you're quite right famous in the football world actually internationally so well 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 spotted yeah, yeah.
1: when you talk about you know sugar not being a football man you know if you compare, compare him to David Dine at, um, at Arsenal and kind of the difference yeah. in terms of their tenure and what they managed to do for the club and um, kind of their foresight about the way the game was going. Mm. And, um, you know, it couldn't be more marked.
2: Yeah. I said, well, I mean, just thinking about the, everything I say on Sugar here just leads me to the conclusion that there's no binary conclusion to this. But, I mean, actually, in 1994, we signed Klinsman. We also signed Dimitrescu and Popescu at a time where there really weren't many foreign players in mm. the in in the, in the Premier League. And we were innovators. I think Nottingham Forest signed Brian Roy that Summer, But really, those were the only foreign players in this. So it's almost as if we stumbled upon an innovation. And then because of what happened with Clinton, we would then shat ourselves, or at least Sugar did anyway. But then if you look at the likes of Ruud Hullit, Dennis Bergkamp, Roberto Di Matteo, Janinho, Emerson, um, Viali, David Ginola, that came into the Premier League in those next two years, mm. when we seemed, again, very reticent to go back into those markets, that's really what cost us. Yeah. It was false pride, wasn't it, really? And
0: and I mean, ultimately, we should also note that another uh, another probably vital moment in 90s Tottenham Hotspur history is that the one person who could have held a, as big a grudge as Alan Sugar uh, was Jürgen Klinsmann. But he didn't, and he came back and saved us from relegation. I mean, you know, this was after, I mean, I'm sure that you'll remember, Milo, some of the things that were said about Klinsman, like, uh, you know, car, I, I, he said something about... Wouldn't wash his car with his shirt. Yeah. Sort of thing that was exceptionally rude and unnecessary. But, you know, thankfully, Jürgen didn't hold any uh, any grudges and came back and did, you know, was a major factor in us staying up in 1997-98. But we sank into mid-table mediocrity in the 90s. There's absolutely no doubt about it, and that's probably quite a polite evaluation if you consider 97, 98, to be fair. You know, but we did this just when the Premier League, Champions League, and Sky coverage of games was bringing huge sums of money for successful clubs. Uh, and, and of course, the great irony is that Alan Sugar was one of the key drivers of the, the Premier League and Sky happening. But, you know, how so how much did this, you know, mediocrity cost us?
1: Would well, Can I just touch on kind of how that, Premier League deal came about so
0: yeah you know you should absolutely so in May
1: 1992 um the Premier League chairman were meeting in London to discuss the bids and you had ITV B Sky B so bidding for it and Sugar as Spurs chairman had received an envelope that morning with um containing the details of ITV's bid and he picked up the phone to uh Sam Chisholm at B Sky B and told him what ITV's bid was and told him to blow them out of the water and the reason sugar did this is that Amstrad were making sky satellite dishes so sky did blow them out of the water i think sugar originally offered not to vote you know not to vote on the, on the deal but um the premier league allowed him to do so um and the sky bid was accepted by 14 votes to 6 so sugar's vote um was crucial in giving it the two thirds majority in in order to pass and as a result of that, Amstrad's share price jumped by £7 million on the announcement of the deal, um, which um, smells a little bit. Oh,
2: yeah,
0: it smells like an open sewer on a hot summer's day.
1: So, you know, if you look at the kind of the, the route that modern football's taken, Sugar was absolutely instrumental in setting the Premier League on that path. But we as a club didn't benefit on it because, you know, we, we during a decade where, you know, we started the decade in, you know, in, in a good shape you know we had a good team on the pitch if you know there was a mess financially off it but the team at the turn of the decade was a really really good team and you know we when the Champions League started off you know we weren't in a position to to qualify and as the, as the number of places expanded we missed out and it became a bit of a cartel for a while the top four clubs uh, locked into those positions or well, you know the top two and you know it was expanded out locked into those positions we completely missed that and because of that money coming into the game we were falling further and further behind clubs that um, at the turn of the decade were either our peers or clubs that were behind us
0: Hmm. oh absolutely and i mean this is one of the reasons and for those of you who do not remember this era of history you will hopefully have a little better of an understanding why we're not you know we don't get quite so jumpy in our chairs about like you know the morals of super leagues and so on and so forth because we saw the moral code sort of corrupted once already and uh, as you have just out- outlined you know alan sugar was part of that whole movement but how i mean how typically Tottenham is it that he's part of a movement that ushers this in, but then, he, you know, for whatever reason, I will personally state I think his ego and the way he is, you know, prevented us from benefiting, as you Mm. just said. How ironic, how ironic indeed.
2: Yeah, I mean, only to say, I think had the Premier League and the football boom occurred 10 years earlier, we'd have have really um, benefited from that in a big way. I think it really would have done a lot for our global brand. I think that, uh, equally, Liverpool and Everton of the t- traditional big five from the eighties also were a little bit like us—that they weren't on the ascendancy at the right time mm. either. And it took—well, you could arguably Everton have never caught up. Liverpool, it's probably taken them—well, they took them thirty years to win a league title again. Uh, Manchester United. Arsenal and then you know Chelsea for other reasons were the main benefactors of that football boom that occurred and so um, unfortunately uh, we had the handbrake on at exactly the wrong Mm. time.
1: Probably only Arsenal and Man United who actually clued up to it so the big five you know us, Arsenal Man United, Liverpool, Everton
0: I think Man United were very fortunate as well to have had the right youth set up um, uh, you know at the same time as they could you know so they didn't have to spend massive amounts of money they could just make massive amounts of money and bank it.
1: And their timing was perfect you know they won the first Premier League title you know bringing in Canton at that point you know uh, uh, just Absolutely perfect timing. So there's,
2: there's one other sort of the slightly less-known characters who played a big part in that. So Spurs had a guy working for them somewhere in the commercial department. I think his name was Edward Freeman, who left the club in the early 90s to join Manchester United. And he is supposedly responsible for the commercialisation that Manchester United benefited from that you just alluded to there. So, I mean, he was, he was really the brains behind their club shop being essentially a shed and turning into the first megastore of any club in the world in the early 90s. So that I mean, I, I, I'm not quite sure the chronology of why he left Spurs, and it was I think it's perhaps in the latter area er, er, years of the scholing, scholar era. Ah, oh dear, you know what, Milo, you're right. It is actually
0: all turning a bit shit after all this. <laughs> when we look back. I it's, mean,
1: it's the international break. Let's do a light, cheery one. I said. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Just looking at all the potential and all the moments. I mean, there's so many sliding doors. It's like an ICLA home. It's like unbelievable. I mean, I yeah, I, I anyway, I look, I think we've established that Alan Sugar, again, thank you for saving us. But, you know, we really wish you'd been a little different when it came to the you know, really putting your foot on the pedal. I think we we've agreed with that. I would like to before we, you know, get to the playing stuff and the 90s, I think we should touch very briefly on the managers. Um, and I think, you know. Aussie, obviously. Then we had Jerry Francis, uh, affectionately known, or I think it's affectionately known as the Badger. Mm-hmm. For his fantastic hair. Um, uh, fantastic, I mean egregious in a way. One of the most egregious mullets, although consistent he has been with that mullet. You cannot deny him that. You know, there was Christian Gross, and then there was Man in a Raincoat, whose name I still find it nearly impossible to say. And I mean, it's fair to say we ended the 90s with Man in a Raincoat and Stuart Houston as the number one and two in our club, which I think, quite frankly, to me, says everything uh, about like how, you know, absolutely terrible the 90s became by the end but let's briefly look at Aussie. we were talking about this before we came on the pod and we were trying to debate and remember you know whether the points deduction from uh, the season he got sacked in 94 95 came in um, you know whether the points came back after he got sacked and uh, we, we determined that they did um, so I mean let's just let me just ask you a pointed question you know we saw what Aussie was trying to do with the famous five um, we saw how it really wasn't balanced enough to work very well at that time you saw flickering embers of it working but of course you know, with respect to Stuart Nethercott, when he's just, you know, one of your centre-halves, it's always going to be hard to make it solid, yeah? Do we believe that had Ozzy been given a little more time and possibly had the points that he would have got it right with, you know, the likes of Dimitrescu and and and, and Barmby and Anderson? I mean, you know, there's a lot of good players there. And remember, he did sign in Djika Popescu, a quite brilliant footballer. And, and And, you know, there's a player that got away. So do we think that, you know... If we'd have stuck with him, it would have turned around or
2: not? Gareth, I think I'm going to go to you first. Uh, No, I'd love to think that it would have done, but I don't think it did because prior to that season, we had the 93-94 season, which was his first year in charge. You've got to remember that Aussie being appointed was a reaction to Venables sacking and Sugar really needing to getting the fans on side. And Aussie Ardiel had a very unremarkable managerial record at Mm. both Swindon, West Brom and Newcastle in in the second or third tiers before that so it was his name that he that he was brought in for and we nearly got relegated in that 93-94 season you know albeit because Teddy Sheringham who was our best player was, was was out for a significant period of that year I think we went on a 13 game streak of not winning in the Premier League from New Year's Day through until to Easter Saturday so I, I think there's enough evidence to suggest that Aussie wasn't up to the job of, of of keeping a team in the Premier League let alone getting into the sort of the top Six, and we were refreshing the pan for the start of that 94 95 season because we had the, the front five, and it took about four weeks for teams to work out how to play against us. And, and and once they did, the writing was on the wall.
1: Yeah, I think you're both right. I think maybe Aussie should have been director of football rather than first team manager. There's some great signings there, but um, he didn't quite know what to do with them.
0: You know, we went from uh, you know from Aussie, and, and and by the way, you know, I, I have to say, Gareth, I think you're probably right on reflection. Um, And you know, regular listeners to our pod will surely understand that I am a hopeless romantic who likes to believe that you know, the flowers and the trees and the birds and the animals speak to us all and hug us when we need them in our time of desperation. But it really, life isn't quite like that, is it? And I think you're quite right, Ozzy, probably wouldn't have worked out regardless. Um, But the, you know, the badger came in and it was quite exciting for a while. Um, It certainly culminated in probably what was uh, one of my favourite moments of the 90s, which we'll talk about a little later, I'm sure, Um, the quarterfinal victory at Anfield. You know, there was some good stuff going on. Then we got to 96, and then we got to 97, and it was just all falling apart. Um, it all fell apart again, didn't it? And then we got Christian Gross. So let's just have a few brief words on the Jerry Francis era for, for those who don't remember it, and also, in you know,
2: for those who do. <laughs> So, Jerry Francis was appointed in to replace Ozzy in 94 because of the work he'd done at Queen's Park Rangers. Mm. So, he'd, he'd taken a, a very unremarkable side and gotten punching above their weight. Um, when he came to Spurs, was yeah, so he had Klinsman, he had Sheringham, he, he bombed Dumitrescu out fairly quickly and brought David Howells back in. Then, of course, he lost Klinsman and Barmby through no fault of his own in that. In the, in the next summer. I mean, he built a very functional side. So, the 95-96 sort of side contained the likes of Dean Austin, Colin Baldwin, Justin Edinburgh, Jason Dezel, Ronnie Rosenthal. It was a very functional team with very ordinary players. The problem was it really had a ceiling so although we did quite well that year and we finished just outside and it was only, in fact it was only on the last day of the season that we were denied finishing in the UEFA Cup um, the 95-6 season but the following year Chris Armstrong and Teddy Sheringham both suffered really bad injuries and the thing I remember most about Jerry Francis was just how unfortunate he seemed to be. Um, mm. he, seemed, he seemed to have a hell of a lot of bad luck particularly with injuries which and perhaps may have been down through um, a lack of progression in um, the physical conditioning of players, and certainly the medical team at Spurs at the time. I'm not, it, you know this isn't hyperbole. It was a joke. The Spurs medical team. You can hear lots of players who played in that era talking about some of the um, some of the treatment they were given, some of the advice that that they were given. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think Jerry Finesy was just slightly a man out of man out of time. I think we got him when he was perhaps at the peak of his powers at Queen's Park Rangers, but football moved on very quickly in that 18-24 to month period afterwards and he was left badly behind.
1: Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. I think you could see the logic. He'd done well at QPR comparatively, but I think probably what appealed to Sugar most was, uh, again, him building a team on a budget rather than anything else. Polishing turds. Yeah.
0: yeah, and I think I think we covered Christian Gross earlier. I, one of you, uh, very very uh, accurately said. I think it was you, Milo, said he was a you know essentially a reaction appointment to, to yeah. Arsene Wenger that was just horribly researched and horribly wrong. And uh, you know, I, I I've got to admit, I felt a certain sympathy for Christian Gross, uh, you know, because he made that comment about that you know that using his his travel card or whatever to get you know to just of course the press at the time merciless. This is the cabbage era son, right? So they would jump on anything, and I think. He was trying to make a, 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 you know, what I would consider to be an inclusive proletariat comment, and it just shoved right back at him. And I also do think that he had the misfortune to stumble across several players who just didn't give a flying fuck. I think that was a massive problem as well. But you know, somehow uh, we we managed to stay up, and you know, we survived survived uh, his tenure. And then we ended up with, with, you know, he who should not be named. And look, I'll go on record here right now as saying I had a ticket for that 1999 League Cup final and I I didn't go. And, you know, I know people get upset about this sort of stuff. You know, why support the club? Not That's fine. Support the club. But that man should never have been at our club. It's as simple as that. And if you disagree, then I disagree with you tenfold. And I thought it was a wanky appointment and it was an even wankier appointment to bring in Stuart Houston. And it really made things unpleasant.
1: I mean, I, I think with um, with George Graham, it's ironic. You know, we, we, we were talking earlier on about the fallout from uh, Sugar's uh, falling out with, uh, with Venables and the, the points deduction and what have you. And... Yeah, then his last appointment as uh, Spurs chairman was George Graham, who'd served a ban for taking bungs. And, you know, not only, you know, it, it, what he'd done at Arsenal and how fucking god awful his football is, he'd served a ban. Just unbelievable.
2: Um, sorry, I'm slightly at risk here. I just want to check, Seth, There's no soapbox underneath you at the moment, is there? Um, because, because, <laughs> because. I mean, the similarities between the appointment of George Graham in 1998 and the appointment of Jose Mourinho in in 2019 are, yeah. um, you know, startling, <laughs> really. And it's, um, I, 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 look, it's another example of managers, even the very, very best managers, maybe except for Ferguson, who's the exception to this one, have a shelf life of about 10 years. George yeah. Graham went into an environment at Arsenal in 19. 1986 where he had the ability and the capacity to build his team unfortunately and we, we mentioned the Anfield 89 game earlier into a great team by 1998 his time was up football had moved on yeah. and Alan Sugar was appointing him on reputation um not on what was happening at
1: the side. so you only have to look at what David O'Leary did at Leeds after he left yeah the difference between yeah. George Graham's Leeds side and David O'Leary's Leeds side just you know chalk and cheese
0: Very well stated. And again, we've said this, I believe, on the pod before, but it bears saying right now, um, you know, one thing that uh, I think listeners should know if they don't is that, you know, uh, the man in the raincoat approached Tony Adams to be his assistant. And Adams basically turned down and said, absolutely not. I'd never I'd never go across. I'd never go Mm. across there. No, I wouldn't do it. Won't happen. And for that, he will always have my grudging respect. Good for him. Uh Instead, the, the Bung Meister did take our money. And, you know, yeah, it's a fine example of why I disagree with trophy wankers, actually, because a trophy from uh, under his tenure doesn't count to me. And I know, I know people would be upset about that. That's fine. We all we're all supporters in our own different ways, and so on. I didn't stop. I still bought, you know, the pony shirt that season. I still supported the club. I just, you know, I could not say his name and don't like to legit. So,
2: so, so the fascinating thing about that season is that the undercard, sort of the subtext of that George Graham era was player of the year David Ginola who was playing for us that year. Mm. And that was like a play in itself the, the 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 clash of personalities and characters between them and what they stood for and who the crowd were behind. Yeah. I mean, I think it's
0: you know, we're into that whole uh, period and I think that we should um you know, take a little look at some of the players that uh you know, define 90 Spurs for us and I mean, we've mentioned Ginola, I'll briefly say that, you know, I think that one of the things that always sees Ginola get the plaudits for this decade and this era was he was a shining light in a in a in a you know a shit show of darkness most of the time I mean you know erratic darkness at that, mm. but he was a consistent reminder that the club still had someone who played with what we considered to be the Tottenham way the tottenham ethos
2: yeah very i mean I'm still amazed that we got him in the first place because he was a star in the Newcastle side yeah. and it was doug Glees that was was prepared to release him um in in ninety seven when he came to us so it's Jerry Francis that signs. Ginola and I'm not sure he ever, Francis ever really knew what to do with him because in France's mind Andy Simpson was his left winger player that you could rely on would track the right winger going back the other way and I mean Ginola sort of popped up all over the place in those first few months in that first season and then again under Christian Gross and he combined well with, with Klinsmann and they were very much on the same wavelength but yeah what you know, what, what what a player my memories of watching Ginola play were when he picked the ball up on the halfway line you would just hear that noise of seats flipping, flipping up. And hitting the back of it because people were on their feet and they just wanted to see what he was going to do next. And we were so blessed to see him and and to have him at the at the height of his power for those what, two or three years.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Pick a player two if you want the Typify ninety Spurs for
0: you. But let me just give our listeners, you know, a, a list of players that that you know we put together. I'll just read these out. Wrote you know you've got Ian Walker, Justin Edward, Teddy Sheringham, Darren Anderson, Nick Barnby, Eric Torsvik, Saul Campbell. <laughs> David Howes, Ginola, Ferdinand, Klinsman, Calderwood, Carr, Rosenthal, Fox, Sinton, Armstrong, Everson, Nielsen. Those are the ones we've named. And I'm about to name Stuart Nethercott for probably the sixth time in this podcast, which is probably five and a half times more than either Gareth or Milo expected his name to pop.
1: I don't think his mum's called him that much in the last year, let alone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and and of course Austin and Sedgley and you know I'm going to throw in that you know there was a point in time where we looked at Dean Austin and Justin Edinburgh as dashing attacking fullbacks and they were recognised as such. But in order to keep this you know somewhat manageable for the listener and the editor, let's nail it down to players that spe- you know that really for you would be a heartbeat of '90s top
1: Milo. We just kick off with Darren Anderton. So, Up until very very recently, our um, Premier League appearance. Record holder, an ever-present bar, bar a couple of years at the beginning, and uh, you know, much maligned at the time, but a fantastic player, absolutely fantastic player, and. Yeah, a shining light pretty much through the decade.
2: What I really like about Darren Anderton, the signing of him, it's very much, uh, Daniel Levy a few years ago said about they like to, their comfort zone is buying players in that, I don't know, maybe 10 to 15 million pound who are young and can progress. And I mean, that's what Darren Anderton was, albeit, you know, with inflation factored in as well. That We signed him for just over a million pound in 1992. Mm. It was Terry Venables that, that really made a beeline for him to get him away from Portsmouth where he'd started in their cup run that had gotten to the semi-final and there's a lot of revisionist history about Darren Anderson because of his nickname but as you said there he'd played more Premier League games for us than anyone else until Hugo surpassed that tally and he played, um, he played for us pretty much for what eight seasons during the 90s he was a mm. very very good player and technically he scored some fabulous goals and the fact that players like Teddy Sheringham and Jürgen Klinsmann enjoyed playing with him so much is is, it's got to be a sign of of how good a player he was um I mean I'm it really you know upsets me when I hear people um providing a slightly revisionist version of, of, of his impact at the club but I mean slightly because he was the first player's name that I had on the back of my shirt um I will always very very fondly remember fondly remember Darren Anderson and a huge part of England's Euro 96 team as well and then Glenn Hoddle's 98 squad too
1: yeah I was going to mention his international um, form appearances he, he was excellent for England
2: well I, I remember the debut he, it was Terry Venable's first game as England manager when we played It as a friendly against Denmark in, in 1994 and this was a time where it felt that players getting an international call-up was a huge thing and I can remember kind of quite nervously watching that game against Denmark really really desperate for Darren Anderson to do well in that game and and, and he did and he kept his place in the team and he was say, a big part of Venable's team and then of Glenn Hoddle's team that went through to 98.
0: Yeah, I agree with all of that uh, when it comes to Darren Anderton. Effectually known as Shaggy. Note, again, listeners will surely uh, figure out well, actually, listeners might not know why he was called Shaggy. Scooby Doo. Zoinks! That's right, Scooby Doo. Scooby Doo. That's right. So um, next time you watch Scooby Doo, think of Darren Anderton. I'm going to actually go with someone. I mean, there's so many great names, and you know, I wanted to go with Teddy Sheringham. In my heart of hearts, because Teddy Sheringham was my favourite player for Spurs during that time, and scored what I consider to be one of the greatest goals I've ever seen live with that equaliser at Anfield. It's just beautiful. The curl and bend on that ball. It was just fantastic. But I'm going to actually be a little more holistic and look at the decade as a whole and I think Justin Edinburgh has to be the, the player who for me you know, he, he spanned the entire he spanned pretty much the entire era.
1: His first career was nineteen ninety to two thousand.
0: Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. so he saw it all. He saw he saw all the highs, all the lows, all the irregularities. But one thing you could say about Justin Edinburgh and his two hundred and thirteen odd uh, appearances, and I think there's probably a few more than that, you know, Cup games. One thing you'd say about him in all those appearances was he was pretty consistent. I mean, you know, he was, you knew what you were getting with him. You were getting commitment. uh, You were getting a bloke who was not afraid to to do his job, you know? And he really did. I mean, as the cliches go, and I don't want to get too cliche ridden here, but he would leave it all out there. I think one thing that always amuses me is that in all those appearances, he scored one goal. Where were you when Justin scored would probably be a song. And, uh, that goal was at Sheffield United in 1991 in a 2-2 draw. Uh, and he never scored other than that. Um, I think probably is a very famous memory that everyone has. And this will be the game that I turned the ticket down for, actually, that I was talking about a little earlier. But I did see it on the telly. mid admit to watching it on the telly. I couldn't completely blank it. But, uh, of course, he's, uh, you know, he's dusted up with Robbie Savage um, mm. in, in the League Cup final, um, you know, which almost actually, I think, sealed his legend in a way. I don't, I don't know why that was. Was, but there is an outpouring of sympathy for him in the face of Savage's complete shithousery. But yeah, for me, he really does typify everything because, you know, through thick or thin, you know, fancy boys and none all around him whatever whoever's in charge you know sugar this whatever that there he was there he was you know he was a stalwart so he's sort of my my 90s guy I think if we have to define anyone
2: yeah no I very fond memories of him you know god rest his soul of course but he's the only player that played for Spurs in every calendar year of the 90s as you said, he joined us from Southend in nineteen ninety, and then left in two thousand. my memory of Justin Edinburgh wasn't—he was a cup game against Nottingham Forest. It's one when we lost on penalties to them, and I don't know. why, I, I was sitting at the top of the East Stand that game, and it was—it was just sort of a twenty eighty challenge against him and he must have run about 30 yards just to make this challenge um, which would probably be a red card these days but it was a fair challenge and it went out for a throw in and nothing came of it but that was just his tenacity and his enthusiasm to, um, you know, to, to win the ball and to get the crowd going as well so yeah very fond memories of Justin Edinburgh. I'm going to go a little bit more irreverent um, albeit he's a, bit, he's a bit of a folklore hero is, is Alan Nilsson. Um, mm. Now Alan Nilsson I would say is just an example of that sort of bargain aisle European player that we bought whilst Arsenal and Chelsea were were buying superstars we were out getting players from Bromby for one and a half million pound and you know Alan Nilsson with exceptional teeth he did have very good teeth yeah he had wonderful teeth
0: great bone structure and he had highlights as well didn't he I think there we go we've we've touched on players here <laughs> there we are of course we have to anyway. He, um, yeah so,
2: look, I mean Alan Nilsson will be remembered most famously for scoring that winner in the aforementioned game of which the the ticket still sits on your mantelpiece Steph um, against Leicester and you know the, the the greatest gift that he gave not only to Tottenham Hotspur but to football that afternoon was that by scoring that goal in the 92nd minute it, um, it deprived everyone of watching another 30 minutes of extra time which would have been god awful um, <laughs> <laughs> how true how utterly true I, I mean I, I remember Alan Nielsen's home debut it was a league game against Newcastle and this is really when this Newcastle were peak Newcastle so they just bought Shearer for 15 million mm. and Probably in the same way that Gascoigne and Lineker used to add five thousand people onto the gate um, in the early nineties. Newcastle would had that same effect in the mid nineties. Um, and I can remember watching Nilsson play in that game and he got cautioned after about seven minutes and that you know the bloke behind me had written him off at that point. And look, he he was he was a very let's say he was a very average but very hard working player who played for us. But so, so I think he really epitomizes our dabbles into the continental market which was just opening up to English clubs at the time and it, ultimately, it was why we always finished somewhere between ninth and thirteenth. Yeah, and I mean, again, I think we can
0: refer to people to the list that I did read out at hyperspeed. I mean, we're obviously, again, we're overlooking some fantastic players. You know, we're also, look, let's be blunt, we're also overlooking the fact that for several years we had the greatest young centre back in English football. Uh, and whether anyone wants to admit it or not, Sol Campbell was a marvellous centre back for several seasons. He was brilliant, mm. and that's why it hurts so much what he did. And it's such a typical. Illustration of Spurs in the 90s that we can have, you know, probably the best centre back in world football and lose him to that lot across the street, um, you know, but I mean, it should be mentioned, you know, we get stick week in, week out quite rightly. So for the way he went about his transfer, albeit, I think we've defined that that stick should remain on football terms and nothing else. Um, but he was a great player. I mean, there's no two ways about it. Mm. You know, and then we had wasters, you know, we had a couple of wasters in there. I always thought the rule Fox really sort of took a, took a holiday once he joined us, cause he was excellent at Norwich. And there's one player on the, the list that I do want to mention, um, for personal reasons. Uh, I, I I do have to give a shout out to Espen Bardson, who was, you know, really important in that season where we stayed up. I mean, he had uh, several, um, you know, match, match-saving match performances that, that really contributed to us staying up that season, and albeit he fell foul of he who should not be named uh, for reasons that I should not be stating. But uh, again, you know possibly another example of 90s Tottenham uh, you know a, a great a, a really good talent that we never managed to bring through in the right way
2: so it's just like Espen, he was seen because of his nationality he was going to be the next Eric Torts there was even an Espen mm. the, Va- the Viking child and I, I remember one save he made against Bolton it was a televised game and it turned out to be a real six-pointer in that 97 98 year when we just stayed up but he made an incredible save down in front of the Paxton Road end, down low to his left um, which the camera caught perfectly and you can see how just how significant that fingertip was I remember that and I remember him uh, a nil-nil draw at Highbury where uh, they
0: absolutely battered us and I remember Thierry Henry saying that he thought it was the best goalkeeping performance he'd ever seen against them at that time and I also remember him making this incredible double save against Blackburn actually which I mean he won got the player of the, the match as a midweek game he won 2-1 but he made an almost Banksy and double uh, like it was one of those double saves it's just incredible uh, but that being said Uh, You know, we could probably all pick players and uh, the big T is coming up. And that's not the big T for Tottenham. Uh, It's the big T that says it is time to wrap things up with a final question. And that is, you know, we're speaking about on the pitch here. Okay, best moment of the 90s and worst moment of the 90s. It's going to be tough. It's going to be ugly because there's many of each but Gareth you look like the man who can kick us off with that challenge so there you go right to it
2: <laughs> my best moment of the 90s i think the moment where i most wanted to walk out of my front door with my spurs shirt on uh, it was it was the month from July the 30th until August the 31st 1994 and I'm going to call this the Klinsmania period so we signed Jürgen Klinsmann and this was so this was an incredible signing I just can't get over how much of a high profile signing this was when when we bought Klinsmann I saw it on Teletext just to just to to give this some vintage as well and those first few weeks so when he first arrived in the country in his in his beetle once he totally um, put the press on their back foot by making reference to the fact that he dived in his in his own Press conference to the fact that fans were locked out of a pre-season game at Watford because they wanted to see him, and then of course that goal on his debut at Hillsborough, and then the um, the two goals that he scored against Everton three days later. And then we won at Ipswich at the end of the month. I've got a feeling he may not have scored or maybe he only scored once in that game. But by all accounts, that was just breathtaking Spurs. And so that was the moment when probably I felt most proud until the Pochettino era to be a Spurs fan was that almost calendar month of August 1994. As for the worst moment, I think it was... Yeah, it helped, I, yeah we could do a pod on worst moments of the 90s and you know, and, and get three hours out of it. Um I'm going to pick another week, actually. I'm going to pick the week of November 1996, and we had a horror week. So... The Wenger had just come in at Arsenal when we went and played them on a Sunday afternoon on a live televised game, and at the mo at that point Jerry Francis had never lost a game to Arsenal um, and this was really when, when when the balance shifted. We lost three one there Tony Adams popped up with about five minutes to go and hit a volley from the edge of the area and Then Burkamp scored a, a sort of typical Burkamp worldie, and we felt very, very sorry for ourselves having lost there three days later, we went to Bolton in the League Cup and got beaten six one We got absolutely cuffed up up at Burnham Park and then we played Liverpool on the Monday night was the following league and we were really hoping for a big reaction in that game and that was the game when McManaman met this shot in front of the park lane and that bounced off the turf and bounced over Ian Walker's shoulder and then the camera panned on Ian Walker had this wry grin on his face as he looked up Mm. and watched the replay of it on the Jumbotron and that was the moment where you really got the sense that you know there's something really going on at Arsenal here at the moment and we have probably not even plateaued we're on a downward trajectory and my god (laughs) did Did we see that then materialise over the next couple of years or so?
1: My best moment would be the FA Cup semi-final in nineteen ninety one, which we've talked about quite a few times before, so I won't um, I won't dwell on it too much. But three um, one win over those lot with uh, the best free kick I've ever seen is uh, is a pretty good way to start the decade. And uh, my worst, I'm going to go with twenty um, second of July nineteen ninety five Intertoto Toto Cup Cologne eight Tottenham 0, with a scratch side pulled together because we didn't want to be in the competition in the first place yeah I was looking at the lineup earlier on that today earlier on today on that so Chris Day Stephen Carr Owen Cole Mark Newsome, Jamie Clapham David Byrne not that one Alan Pardew Simon Spencer Andy Turner Kevin Watson Steve Slade Eight nil.
0: That's a that's a bad
1: one. A record defeat.
0: Yes, I, I'm going to be I'm going to be very specific. Actually, you know that the semi final, of course, was big. I I wasn't there, so I enjoyed it from afar. As I've talked about before on a video tour, a video on a tour bus with Napalm Death about a week later. I mean, for me, my favourite moment of the nineties that I witnessed that I was there was that quarter final against Liverpool at Anfield. Um, I, I just the energy that came from that equaliser. The football we played that day was really mm. good. We were worthy. We were worth our win. And, of course, a last-minute winner from Jürgen Klinsmann, front of the cop, you know, you're not going to get much better than that. And they and the Scousers gave us a, a, a round of applause at the end. And I have to say, to a person outside the ground, Liverpool supporters were, were, were really great. They were really, like, you know, good on your lad and so on and so forth. So a really brilliant uh, feeling. And I really, really felt that we were going to win the cup that year and so it would almost be poetic if I was to tell you that my worst moment of the 90s was then that 4-1 defeat at Elland Road, which was disastrous and terrible, but it wasn't. I think my worst memory, and my God, there have been a few, sadly. There really have been, especially. But, you know, the Francis ones, they kind of merge into a big sort of pile of sludge into the gross, and then he who should not be named. I don't know. They all become, it becomes too amorphous to, to break down. The one I can break down for you is when we lost 1-0 to Coventry in April of 19. 19- 94. uh, Significant to me because Kurt Cobain had sadly um, taken his own life several days earlier so I was already on a downer for that and then not only did we lose a vital game in our fight for survival that season but it was to a Kevin Scott own goal. I mean you know my friends and I got abused by a nine-year-old Coventry supporter outside the ground. I mean, it was just about the shittiest away way they experienced you can imagine. And I remember leaving the ground thinking, my, my God, we, we might actually get stuffed. We might go down. And if I remember correctly, and I know Gareth will correct me here, it was only when we went up to Oldham, I think, uh, uh, was it two weeks later? We went up to Oldham and, and the, the much relied Vinny Sanways, a player we haven't even touched on, actually, mm. who was also emblematic of these, scored two goals up at Oldham you know Vinny Samways and David Howell scored that night up at Oldham there we go I remember that so so that was my worst moment and I'm going to wedge this in I'm going off script Myla's going to reach through the screen and punch me that's fine I don't care we can't mention the 90s without mentioning Naeem what's wrong with us who the hell are we who the (laughs) hell are we Naeem provided probably the one of the greatest moments of the 90s in and it wasn't in our shirt
1: it was the best Spurs goal of the decade, wasn't it?
0: <laughs> it was the best Spurs goal of the decade, you know, and thus it gave us that, you know, it gave us that great song, Naeem from the halfway line, and mm. it gave us those horrible puns, you know, the Naeem can lob Seaman from 50 yards and all that kind of childish stuff, which I freely engaged in in my, uh, you know, at that time. And, uh, and you know, so, I, I am mean, a shame on us, actually. It's not in our notes at all, and I'm really glad I remembered it. So, uh, pat on the back
2: to your moderator, because let's be fair, or your host, I should say, can't forget him. <laughs> well, he was a real cult hero, wouldn't he? Oh. And I, yeah, and I mean, I remember him scoring a goal at home to Norwich on Easter Monday. It would have been the ninety-two, ninety-three season. He squeezed one oh, on in from, from a remember. really tight angle. And of course, Naim was the <laughs> player who came on for Gascoigne in the ninety-one FA Cup final as well. He certainly played a mm. part in the equalising goal that we that we scored. Um, oh. So yeah, genuinely a real cult hero of a player.
1: Um, I just wanted to give a, a nod to um, Stephen Carrs. Goal against Man United at home. It's was nineteen ninety nine, wasn't it? Was it three one? 23rd of
2: October, yeah. Three one. Man United.
1: Yeah. What? What a goal!
2: That's it. I mean, I've mean, i got a story what about God. that game as well, if you if you just indulge me for a minute. But Pete Abbott, who's Spurs announcer, um, who, who you know, I'm friends with, and Pete won't mind me telling this story. Um, so Pete's the one who, who gives you the team line-ups. Um, he used to introduce Paul Quite to the picture and tell you the goal scorers. Uh, anyway, if you watch footage of that game, so Stephen Carr scores that screamer. If you if you watch the video back of that game and you listen in, you'll hear Pete saying, third goal for Spurs scored by number seven, Rul Fox." Now, if ever there was a player who looked least like Stephen Carr, <laughs> it's probably raw Fox. And um, we, I mean, we still give Pete a good ribbon for this now. But, um, I mean, he will tell you that he was just happened to be, the ball was on the halfway line and he was looking down at his notes or looking at something. And then he hears this huge roar and the ball goes in and he just panicked. And I don't know why he thought it was raw Fox, but he but, but he did. But, you know, it definitely was Stephen Carr, the um, the, yeah, the independent panel from the Premier yeah. League, did have a look at that one. They could confirm it wasn't Royal Fox. And all of this, all of this, and I
0: didn't even get into my absolute joy the night we beat Nottingham Forest 3-1 with jukebox jury scoring and Gary Lineker in the same night as a strike partnership. And what it tells you is that the much maligned 90s are actually a font of entertainment, memories, peaks, valleys, and probably everything that football is all about you know, it is about these moments. It's about these absurd memories and great ones and the, and the tragedies and uh, you know, and all of the good and bad stuff. And, and you know, we're just proving that the nineties is stuffed full of them. And look, I, i'll I'll say this now i think that somewhere down the line we might want to revisit this decade because it's quite obvious that there's an awful lot more to dive into and discuss and maybe we'll have a couple of the other chaps
1: on spurs in the 90s part one this is what this is
0: it really is and 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 what i've what i've learned as we've been talking about this is that you know we started off with quite you know a doldromic view of things if you will and you know You know, this was meant to be a fairly tight record. And here we are by the end of it. And, you know, we went an hour or so without even mentioning Naeem. I mean, there's so much to get (laughs) into. And it really was an entertaining time.
1: I, I mean, I think, you know, if you look at the decade, you know, as we said, we've got some really, really fantastic players there. And when those players hit form, they were completely unplayable. And there's also long periods of absolute dross. So the high points are really high because you've really had to sludge through it to get to them. I remember when Joel was manager and so going to going to games with friends, and one of my friends saying to me, "I'm not enjoying it anymore. I go to the game expecting us to win. It's completely different. It's not what I'm used to. You know, what he was used to was the '90s and going to the games with low expectations and being pleasantly surprised occasionally.
2: No, oh, it's so good you said that." I think the other thing just to make everyone aware of is the macro climate that the 90s is a fantastic decade of nostalgia for football generally and there's lots of very good podcasts that are out there that fit, focus just on the 90s but Spurs are no different that if you look at the way that football as a business and as a game evolved during the decade that if you think about some of the things we've spoken about that were occurring in the very start of the decade it's, it's almost amateurish that it took the Premier League and look we've got a very very polished product now that you almost take for granted, but the 90s was that transitional period from absolute Chaos and games being called off because of um, no undersoil heating working on Boxing Day at the start of the decade and players turning up at club shops and just sticking a load of merchandise in the back of the car. That was you know, a training ground that you hired off the local council, which Spurs did in Mill Hill. Um, that was totally indicative of, of, of where football was as, a, as the top tier of the professional game at the start of the decade. And you could see as the decade progressed here that we were moving towards this more more, more professional, slick machine that we, that we now enjoy.
0: I'm going to have the last word here because you've absolutely just stimulated this memory. This will be the last word. It absolutely will be. But nothing says 90s Tottenham more than me at Filbert Street, the old Filbert Street. We're 1-0 down to a shitty Leicester. We're a shitty Tottenham at that time and Teddy scores an equaliser in like the 93rd minute and we celebrated like we'd won the fucking league. I remember running from the back of the away corner to the front. There were, I mean, and that was a night where it was, you know, the who had all the pies was being sung at fat blokes with their shirts off. I mean, it was, there was no reason for that game to be exciting in any way whatsoever. But still, to this day, I remember the unbridled joy of that equaliser, which meant absolutely bugger all in the context of anything. But what a night that my friends is spurs of the 90s part one what a great conversation and milo i don't envy you i'm sorry but sometimes it has to happen this way so anyway from from the the joys of uh, the 90s uh, to next weekend and the continuation of uh, the antonio conte era more ear-sniffing comfort from the great man, I hope. Uh, <laughs> uh, progressive ear-sniffing comfort, I should say. We welcome Leeds United to White Hart Lane. It's going to be a fascinating contest because it is Conte versus Bielsa. Uh, and it will be interesting to see what a couple of weeks on the training ground with Antonio has done for our players, not on international duty, most of whom it looks like are going to have hearing damage if the uh, the pictures <laughs> of Antonio from the training ground are anything to go by. It will certainly be a lot fitter. Um, and there will be a, a, a condiment-free uh, selection of professionals. We should think for the game, right? So uh...
1: So do you think the game's gonna be saucy then to you, Steph?
0: Oh very good, very good. That's, that yeah, he's he's Chipping away for humour there is very good. Actually, in fairness I think it might not be saucy more than it will be spicy because we do know that, you know, Leeds play with full commitment Bielsa's a fully committed manager likes to fly forward, you know likes to attack and of course Antonio well, I don't know. For me, he can do no wrong right now because I'm just hopelessly in love again. So, um, you know counterbalance that with some common sense analysis of the forthcoming game against
2: oh, That's why I'm slightly stuck in the 90s time warp now and I'm just trying to work out how Colin Cowdrey's going to keep Tony yaboa quiet for ninety minutes. Um, <laughs> well, the question, the answer to that question is he's not. How's that? <laughs> probably, probably about right. Look, I, I think there's lots of variables. It's the back of back end of an international break. You mm. never quite know how all the players are going to come back. We know Conte's been working very hard on the players that have been coming back. Um, I think the reality is it's going to take. A while, maybe maybe weeks rather than months, until we start to see Conte Spurs as he wants to see him. I think it'll be a fairly tight two-one win because I think that's the sensible way to play at the moment. Is um, is is just to keep the handbrake on a little bit. Um, albeit Skip's not going to play, is he? so probably that mm. means um, La Selva or on and Dembélé playing alongside Hoybjerg or well, Winksy. Winks would be the more conservative pick, wouldn't it? But
1: the rumors are that he's going to switch to a three-four-two, a three-four-one-two with Ndombele as the, as the one which I think probably means you're looking at La Celso or, or, or Winx alongside Hoibier. Um so I wouldn't be surprised if we saw Hoibier and Winx with Ndombele and then Sun and Kane up top.
2: Yeah so, so he's not really giving away any trade secrets with Biel. so he'll have a, a helicopter or air balloon flying over Hotspur Way won't he over the week and observing and seeing what's going on.
1: Um, he tends to line up the opposite so he he doesn't tend to match up sides, so I'd expect him probably to play four at the back, which will be interesting.
2: Leeds look like a team in that sort of cliched second season up, so they won a lot yeah. of plaudits last year and they appear to have plateaued this year.
1: Yeah, and I think you know, Beals' sides tend to run out of steam, don't they? A bit. They they tire of his methods after a while. He's had a good run there. I just wonder whether this is kind of the beginning of the end for him there.
0: One thing's for sure, it will be a good game. We are going to get space to to, to get to attack We are going to be given opportunities for sure because that's the way Leeds are. That's the way those games happen. So it's going to be good. I'm excited. I think uh, it's going to go well. But there again, as we've established, I'm a hopeless romantic. So what else would I think? And with that, chaps... I think we've come to the end. All the it, we could probably all witter on about Calderwood, Nevercut and the like forever. Well, maybe not forever, but for at least another hour. But anyway, thanks very much, guys. It was really fun to uh, to somewhat realise that the 90s were actually, they were okay. Are, are you are shit. you at this point, Milo? Are you a little, Are you a little less? Surely you must have warmed up a little bit from shit to mildly uncomfortable at times.
1: There were games I enjoyed. It's just overall, it was shit.
0: Hang on, let's say that again, but without the last half of the sentence.
1: <laughs> what are the little games I enjoyed? Of course there are games There we go, I thank enjoyed. you very
0: much. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Optimism reigns supreme on the games about glory. Thanks, Milo. Thanks, Gareth. And uh, next week, we'll be back to discuss said 21st century football uh, and said game against Leeds United. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram, so give us a follow, say hello. And if you like the pod, which of course you do because you're listening, just tell even more of your friends than you've already told, and help us keep growing. And my word, we are growing, and it's thanks to people like you. So thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.